This is the 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world. And it could blow your head clean off. This town belongs to the people. We're going to have law and order here. Now, that's all I have to say at this time. Welcome to Dirty Harry Minute. It's John here. Uh, we've got a treat in store for you this episode because the original gang is back together. Trent, Tim and myself. Recording for the first time in around eight months. Can you believe it? And we're going to talk a bit about the sequel to Dirty Harry Magnum Force. Talk a little bit about what was going on in the world in 1973, the year the sequel was released, and then cap it all off with a audio commentary. Uh, we're hoping that this is the first of all the Dirty Harry sequels we'll be reviewing um, in the podcast. Not always with Tim and Trent, um, but myself and whoever I can find available. That's right, Lieutenant. We were lucky enough to have one of your men here. He's on board now, an Inspector Callahan. Callahan? Eastwood is back in full force as Dirty Harry and Magnum Force. In 24 hours, Harry manages to cover a stakeout, to stop a robbery, and to be a good neighbor. Hi. Oh, hi. You're the cop who lives upstairs. That's right. It's all in a day's work for Inspector Harry Callahan. Welcome back to a very special episode of Dirty Harry Minute, in which we will be discussing the 1973 sequel, Magnum Force, and doing an audio commentary afterwards that you can sync up and watch with the movie at your own leisure. I'm John, one of your hosts. I'm joined with Trent. Hello, sorry, I was on mute. How are you doing? Very good. And we're also joined with Tim. Hello. How are you? How are you all going, guys? Uh, not too bad. I think this is our first podcast together since the um, pandemic. Yes. A lot has happened since we last recorded together, Tim. Yeah, the world has changed. The last time, of course, we saw Richard Jewell back in February. Did you guys enjoy That's that? That's right. <laughs> just, just before the pandemic. <laughs> when cinemas were still open. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was good. That was that was fun. It was kind of like a refresher course in Miranda rights. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was that sweet spot between the bushfires and before COVID, in which I became a father. Mm. So that was pretty cool. That's right. <laughs> Congratulations again. And also, uh, I think it had it had a clip of Kenny Rogers, who uh, didn't he pass away after the film as well? Oh right. <laughs> As in after we saw that film, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, he did. It would have been like a couple of weeks after, wouldn't it? Yeah, it was very close, I remember. Isn't it really sad when you just mentioned Richard Jewell? I was thinking, who was that? Who Were we sitting with someone <laughs> called Richard Jewell? I'm like, oh, yeah, the film. <laughs> and I had forgotten that Kenny Rogers has a video clip, but he was performing at the Olympics, wasn't he? He has a brief. Yes, um... yes I believe so. <laughs> Unless, unless that was fictionalised. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
Now, Tim, I noticed that um, a big part of your child's life is looking at a man with no name poster. Uh, uh, Warhol yes, style, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How's that going? So we've got the uh, we've got the yeah, it's an Andy Warhol inspired um, uh, sixteen. I think it's got sixteen of the same images of the uh, man with no name and um, looks cool. But uh, yeah, she seems fascinated by it, just always pointing and looking up. So she, uh, she's got the Clint obsession already. Can she say Clint? Clint, Clint. Nah, not, not yet. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll teach her that very soon. Did you enjoy Richard Jewell, Trent? Was it uh, a fun watch? A bit of... It was okay. It was a TV movie sort of feel, <laughs> wasn't it? You don't Which, think you'll ever watch it again? You never watch it no, again? No, I'll never see it again. But the... Well, I should rephrase that because TV movie now is kind of like a badge of honor, yeah. Badge of honor, but I mean, yeah, old school, good, good, pre sort of yeah. Netflix and streaming TV movie kind of thing. Yeah, we know what you mean. <laughs> There's no Hector Elizondo and no Brian Dennehy because they were, and there was always an actress with three names, Mary Beth Stewart or someone like that. Yeah. <laughs> Lou Diamond Phillips. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, Richard Jewell had, um, who was in it again? Sam John Rockwell. Hamm. Rockwell, yeah. Kathy Bates. Oh, that's right. John Hamm. Yeah. Gee, that's, uh, see, I've already kind of forgotten. Oh, yeah, I enjoyed it, but uh, it's one of those ones that you sort of, don't think about very often. <laughs> oh, Trent, speaking of Miranda rights, I finally watched your suggestion, The Star Chamber. Yeah, um, did you like it? I loved it. That's good, isn't it? And um, it also, it's got Hal Holbrook in it, sort of, he's a judge, but he sort of has the <laughs> same vigilante um, uh, desires that he has as Briggs in Magnum Force. What's, uh, I haven't seen that film. What, what's it about? Uh, Michael Douglas, he plays a judge, and he's he's just had it. He's had it with all the all the things he's had to rule as inadmissible and throw out because you know they didn't get the right search warrants and so forth. And he oh, he, right. yes. he joins a sort of secret society of judges that uh, order sanctions on people that get away. Yeah, it's really quite good, Trent. Mm. The two of the actors in it um, who were members of the the Star Chamber, aka the committee. Um, were in vil- were villains in two franchise films of 1973. Hal Holbrook in Magnum Force and Yafet Koto in uh, Live and Let Die. Oh, yeah. I think it's, he's right. in it. Is he's in Star Chamber? Isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He plays yes, the sort of is. the cop. Yes. Yeah. I'm yeah. looking it up right now. And Trent, that movie, that movie was like, you know, all the minutes we did of Miranda rights in the stadium, (laughs) that really tortuous few minutes, this movie just (laughs) literally spelled them out, like almost literally. It talked about (laughs) the fruit of the poisonous tree, because at the start of the movie, I don't know if you remember, but they're they're chasing a suspect and he throws a gun into a trash can. Yeah, "Yeah, we'll get it. And they go, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. There's There's a trash collecting van down the street. Just wait. We can, you know, get him to collect it. And then it's in, it's in the recycling and bin we can we don't need a warrant but then you find out later on well no until he actually compacted it till it goes into the general chamber of rubbish it's still technically his rubbish so they and then yeah so it's pretty pretty cool it was just just pre uh romancing the stone yeah 
I've, I've got this on IMDb, and uh, I can see the director, Peter Hyams, if I'm saying yes. that correctly. Also did Time Cop. He did, and he did uh, Sudden Death. Van Damme. Sudden, <laughs> yeah. sudden Death with Jean-Claude Van Damme. That's right. <laughs> 2010, the year we make contact. End of Days, your favourite, John? End of Days. That's pretty good, pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I like 2010. I've not seen it, Trent. 2000 and the year we made contract. Yeah. yeah, the sequel to 2001. I know it's got Roy Schneider in it. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Come on, his family couldn't afford the end. It's, um... <laughs> John, your uh, your lawyer mind has uh, called it 2010, the year we make contract, but it's <laughs> the year we make contact. Well, <laughs> there's also a scene. Um, in a star chamber where literally there's a, a kid's being killed and it's sort of rem- reminiscent of the Charlie Russell scene a little bit that um, one of the cops is like, I think I'm going to puke like Chico does. And there was, yeah, just a whole, it was a really good movie, Trent. Um, I'm angry at myself. I left it so late in my life to see it. But, um, what put you onto it? Well, no, I just, I was looking up Hal Holbrook and uh, I saw his IMDb, Star Chamber, and I know that was a, in the 15th century in Tudor England or something, that was like a court that just summarily killed blasphemers or something like that. And I thought, what's this about? And I'm like, oh, my mm-hmm. God. He's played the role twice in his life. <laughs> well, anyway, guys, today we're here to talk about the 1973 sequel to Dirty Harry Magnum Force, also known as, no, I'm Harry Callahan, a vigilante, but I won't join your Let's Hunt Criminals Club. <laughs> Did you guys like the movie? You've seen it many times before, Trent? I think I've watched it in its entirety maybe three to four times and the last time would have been whew, 19, 20 years ago. Wow. <laughs> Was that on VHS? Yeah, I don't think I've ever watched the DVD. Maybe I have, maybe once. You do own it though. Yeah, I've got a copy in the, in a box set, but I think... Is there featurettes on yes. the DVD? Yes. I think that's one. I've watched one, that two. on DVD. <laughs> <laughs> but I've never watched the movie on DVD. <laughs> that's understandable. I always like to watch stuff that I haven't seen generally, so you try and watch the new the new stuff that they add on. Yeah, it's always fun. Let's get it out of the way, Tim. Magnum Force. It sounds like a condom, doesn't it? <laughs> Would you trust a condom called Magnum Force, Trent? Um, uh, in in the Me Too time frame, probably not. The, the word force with condoms probably not a good combination, is it? <laughs> it it sounds like a um, like some sort of I don't know sixties cop show or um, or possibly a, a like a. Uh, Private Eye thing, Magnum space type. <laughs> no, well, that either a cop show or a space, like some sort of science fiction thing. <laughs> really? about, I don't know, heroes in space. Yeah, I've not thought so. about that. Or a condom company. Yeah, <laughs> condom brand. <laughs> so the first movie, Dirty Harry, was pretty much about the Zodiac Killer, right? Who was still active in 1971, and it's uh, my favourite movie. It's a power fantasy, you know, if we knew if we knew who you were, Zodiac, this is what we'd do to you. 
there'd be a cop like Harry to get around Miranda rights and, you know, blow you to kingdom come. So, yes, Warner Brothers were very eager to greenlight a sequel to Dirty Harry. Uh, Eastwood had gone back to Universal for High Plains Drifter, which I'm not a fan of. Do you like... Have you seen it, Trent? No, I don't don't think so. Uh, There's something about the movie I've just never really enjoyed that much, particularly because for a long time at JB, you may recall it had an Ellen Jones recommend sticker on it. (laughs) (laughs) Rubbed me up the wrong way. (laughs) But all those westerns you did for outside of Warner Brothers and from about 1970 to 73 or 4 or something, Mm. they all sort of blur into one for me, even if the stories are different. You know, there's two mules... For Sister Sarah and yeah, Sister uh, Sarah. Sarah. <laughs> What's the other one? Um, I'm playing Strip. Every which way you can. <laughs> Joe Kid. Yes, Joe Kid. Yep. So anyway, Eastwood still wasn't. Eastwood still wasn't going to hitch his star totally to uh, to Warner Brothers, so he went back to Universal for High Plains Drifter, and also his second directorial film, Breezy, with William Holden, um, filmed at the end of '72, which uh, even in Post-production, Clint Yu wasn't testing well and wouldn't do that well. So, yeah, Warner Brothers and him both decided let's do a sequel to Dirty Harry, which sequels weren't that common back in the early 70s, Trent, were they? No, I don't think so. I mean, you had series of detective pulp things and whatever. but Yep. Some ones I thought at random and I found on Wikipedia were The Ape, the Apes series, mm. um, The Magnificent Seven, Pink Panther. Um, <laughs> How many of them were there by then? There would have been three or four of them. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Point. Before the mid-70s, sort of the, the cheaper ones came in. <laughs> yeah. It was a different world back then. Um, someone was pointing out in another podcast that in early Saturday Night Live, they had a whole lot of sketches like parroting, you know, Citizen Kane 2 and Jaws 2. <laughs> Well, back then, that was a really novel idea. Like, oh, can you imagine they did sequels to these classic movies? <laughs> and um, obviously, Godfather 2 was probably the first sequel that... Um, is that 73 as well, Trent, or 74? Pro- probably the first real sequel that people said, you know, this deserved to be made. <laughs> I bring that up because the director of Magnum Force, Ted Post, was also the director of Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Hmm. Um, which is a bit of a coincidence. All right. right. Interesting. So he was a, a sequel man. Yeah. And Beneath isn't particularly good, is it, Trent? I mean, it has its kitsch value, but compared to other entries in the series, it's... Uh... It's it's no Conquest. <laughs> I love Conquest. That's my favourite one. Wow. The fourth, the fourth one? one? Is that yeah. The fourth? Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. I really like that. Director of photography is Bruce Surtees, Dirty Harry's cinematographer, Eastwood's cinematographer. Oh, is it? Yeah. Beneath's the only one that doesn't have um, Roddy McDowell in it. Yeah. He's, he was sick or something, I don't know. But, I mean, Roddy was in all the other films and he was in the, the television series. Um, yeah, pretty much everything else. I don't think he was in the animated series, though. <laughs> <laughs> So, Magnum Force, um, with those examples I've given before, could also maybe be uh, contributed to establishing the value of sequels, Trent, because it um, it did quite well. Um, it's not explained how Harry is not a police officer anymore, Tim. Uh, he's thrown away his badge and he's just invited back to uh, to be on stakeout. Did you find that believable? 
And that you don't see yeah, Bressler or the he... Chief at all? Like, those characters are just well, gone? Well, yeah, that's a question. <laughs> that's a question over, you know, <laughs> they don't even reference it, do they? No. In fact, Harry says, you sort of that, Briggs, that I'd go back on a stakeout. But um, I guess back then without sequels, with sequels being a relatively rare thing, it's up for grabs how you whether you continued the story straight away or not. Yeah. But it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder, like if if sequels were not really a thing, what what made them pursue a sequel to this one? Was it the fact that they had, you know, many ideas sort of planned for the as alternatives for the first one, and they thought, oh yeah, we could you know go ahead with this, or they did they just see the money on you know like how popular it was and decide let's just <laughs> throw cash and make a sequel. And this came out. Two years, was it, after the first yeah, one? Pretty so. much, directly, yeah. Relatively quick. It's interesting you bring that up, uh, Tim, because quite literally that's a big part of it. I think um, the original had, you know, as we discussed, uh, three or four versions of the script, so there was a lot of material they could use. Yeah. The I, I suppose, you know, this was all just before the, the Hollywood blockbuster had happened, you know, with Jaws and Star Yeah, Wars that's right. And- that's right. Uh, yeah, the ape series, James Bond, um, the Flint, in, in, in like Flint <laughs> with James Coburn, that was a series, there was like four was two of those, or three. Yeah, yeah. Maybe two or three, yeah. But I guess it sort of harks back to the series or whatever uh, with those serials, you know, Charlie Chan movies and things <laughs> like that from the 50s. Oh, sorry, earlier, 30s, 30s and yeah. 40s, all the serials. Christopher Lee's Fu Manchu, yeah. or some of Hammer, Hammer yeah. sequels. <laughs> Hammer sequels. All those universal horror, you know, Son of Frankenstein and Bride of Dracula and all that shit. And it all it all culminated in the uh, mid-2000s with the seven Saw movies that, <laughs> that came out within seven years, I think. Oh. <laughs> give Police Academy a rub for their buddy. <laughs> Just incredible. <laughs> Yuck. So the main idea for the sequel was Terence Malick's original Dirty Harry script called Vigilance, uh, based in part on the Brazilian police during the 1960s when right-wing policemen went out as vigilantes. What would San Francisco police do if they found... Uh, what, would, what would Dirty Harry do if he found his own department was harbouring a similar organisation? How would he react uh, Eastwood liked the story because it gave him uh, his character a chance to establish unequivocally that he is not fascist, because this time Harry's enemies wouldn't be a weirdo like Scorpio, but real fascists actually dressed <laughs> like stormtroopers on motorcycles. Terence Malick, Trent. Yeah. R.I.P. Oh, how recent? Recently? Yeah, he died not long ago, didn't he? Task Ben. It doesn't matter. Sorry, I'm to, to digress. <laughs> uh, Clint had Let's liked. Look it up. Clint had liked Terence Malick. No, he, he's still alive. Sorry. Oh shit! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh fuck the, the whatever this cold flu tablet I'm taking is helping. <laughs> uh, Clint had originally, as we've discussed, he liked Malick's uh, vigilante idea back in '71, but the director Don Siegel had not. <laughs> Clint decided it was suitable for revival and asked John Milius, that name again, to rewrite it as a smaller scale character piece. After Milius left early to prepare for his own movie, Dillinger, 
The script was further revised by Michael Cimino. According to Cimino, Milius left the script with cardboard cutouts of people shooting at each other, or gun porn as he described it. Cimino removed a lot of that gun porn and added some romantic subplots. So, is it very interesting that this movie, or the Dirty Harry movie in its beginning, had, you know, three... Three difficult people, shall we say, three auteurs, Malik, Milius, and and who's the other one? Chimino, all involved in um, creating the uh, the screen version of the early Dirty Harry. Uh, you find that interesting, Trent? It's not something that he'd do in the future, Eastwood. He'd be wanting to avoid... No, not at all. And I've realised my um, faux pas before was Michael Chimino was the one who died. Oh. Three or four years ago, <laughs> not Terrence Malik. Uh. But, but yeah, it, it is interesting that you know, in the development of this sequel, there were a lot of people who went on to have um, careers that, well, two of them had career, um, careers that wound up with really sporadic output. And two, well. of, and two of them probably would consider this sort of a bit popcorn for them, don't you think, Chimino and Malik? Uh, ultimately, They're what the they ones I'm referring doing. to. Oh yes, yeah. Um, probably, I don't know. I mean, they hadn't. Sort of the artistic license, the blank check hadn't happened to either of them yet, so they're probably just desperate. Yeah, for whatever. that's what I was going to say. They they would have been pretty young, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, they hadn't had their break, which isn't uncommon. You hear about, um, or you find out later about, you know, people who are reasonably big in Hollywood and that they were doing script work or script doctoring on, you know, films ten years ago or prior to their big breaks. Exactly. Here's Emilius' quote for you um, about his work in the first Dirty Harry Uncredited. He says, After that, my price went up. I'd only tell them the beginning of a story I had. That's what you get for free. Then Eastwood said, I'm not going to use you, because I don't have to. These movies don't have to be that good. They just have to be good. End quote. (laughs) I finally watched a little bit of Red Dawn that Romilius directed, and um, I still haven't rewatched Conan. Uh, are you a fan of Milius, Trent? Um, uh, I love Big Wednesday. Oh, the surfing one, yeah. Yeah, I love that film. I didn't care what else he's done. I, I know I love that film. <laughs> Whatever else he does, that's he, um, yeah, he's he's won my heart just from that movie alone. He's still with us. He's still with us, isn't he, Tim? I think so. Uh, John Milius, I think he is, yeah. He's sort of like John Goodman with a beard, isn't he? John Goodman with a beard. <laughs> I suppose so, yeah. <laughs> there used to be a good doco on him on Netflix. Oh. He did, um, he did uh, yeah, Big Wednesday, Wind and the Lion with Sean Connery and uh, Candace Bergen. He's got a credit on Apocalypse Now. What, what did he do on that? Uh, writer. <laughs> Probably gun stuff, that right? Was all, uh, gun porn. Thought, I thought that was all Francis Ford Coppola himself. Or did he not write that? I, I don't think he wrote. Maybe he contributed to the writing. I'd imagine on something like that he probably did. Yeah. 1941, he wrote the story. Wow. Conan, Red Dawn, Extreme Prejudice, Hunt for the Red October, uncredited writer. <laughs> Clear, clear and present danger. There you go. Yeah. We were talking about that. 
<laughs> and Texas Rangers. A shame it's not Walker Texas Rangers. <laughs> but a film starring James Vanderbeek and Ashton Kutcher. Oh, what the fuck? <laughs> what you is mean this? the guy from Varsity Blues? Yeah. Holy shit. But yeah, Big Wednesday is f- sensational. If you, if you haven't seen it, I've check not, it out. I've not seen it. Oh, amazing. I saw it as a kid. It was on TV late at night on a Saturday or something, late Channel 9 movie, and started watching it. Blew my mind. So good. Now, is that called Busey or Nick Nolte? I always get them mixed up. <laughs> it's called, yeah, Busey's the, the third. <laughs> um, it's Jan Michael Vincent. Oh, wow. R.I.P. Um, William Cat and the Busey. They're beautiful film. Guys, there is, of course, there was another proposed sequel of Dirty Harry that um, turned up actually 30 years later in the form of a video game. Not sure if we talked about this in the the pod proper, but there was a a video game commissioned by Warner Brothers Interactive as an, quote, Xbox duck and cover shooter. (laughs) Harry Callahan was to walk the line between bad cop and psychopath if the player was soft on crooks, the criminal would not take Harry seriously. On the other side, excessive force might put Harry in trouble with the chief. Guess what Harry's post-Scorpio nemesis is called in the movie, Tim? Aquarius? Similar. Cancer? Similar. I don't know. The Gemini <laughs> Killer. star sign? The Gemini Killer. Yeah. <laughs> The Gemini Killer is ultimately under the control of a corrupt mayor to be voiced by Lawrence Fishburne. Now, does that send alarm bells ringing off in your head as a rip-off, Trent? A corrupt mayor. A corrupt mayor. Uh, it does. Um, from the 1998 classic Dirty Larry. <laughs> oh, the sequel. <laughs> the Magnum Horse, sorry. Another Warner Brothers movie. Another Warner Brothers movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> corrupt mayor shit I am of course courting, uh, talking about Police Academy 6 oh yes <laughs> zero Mostel character with the mask <laughs> which to be fair already rips off sudden impact when Harris says go ahead make my Christmas to Proctor Ugh. The game was to climax on Alcatraz, with Harry busting the mayor's head with a vice, which I don't know, but sounds even better than a harpoon gun. Mel Paso checked in quite regularly. Apparently, Clint wanted Harry's love interest in the game to be an Asian woman and had earmarked Lucy Liu. The project was fairly far along, with most raw assets being made, before an order came from El Paso to shelve the game. They weren't apparently satisfied with the graphic novel art style. Yeah. Where would they get a shelf it? Did he tell them? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> As he says in sudden, no, the enforcer, seven points suppository, stick it up your ass. <laughs> I would like to have seen that. And there's a few, um, a few renders online on YouTube you can check out, guys. I would have, I would have played it probably. And I'm, not, I'm not a video game kind of guy. Uh, did it say what year that was being developed? It was between 2002 to six, I think, and it shelved in 2007-ish. So, yeah, that was a sequel that was, it was to take place directly after Dirty Harry, apparently. The elements of uh, how the criminals don't take him you know, seriously or not, uh, 
sort of sound very similar to that game L.A. Noir, which uh, has you interrogating oh, yeah. suspects and then having to decide if they're lying or not. Um, but I don't know how they would have really, you know, if you were playing this Dirty Harry game, I don't know how that would have really played out. Do you think there would have been like, a market for it? Presumably it would have... Oh, probably not. <laughs> yeah. With um with the Deadpool back in 88, you know, 12, 15 years beforehand. Well, I was going to say, I'm assuming it would have been like a Grand Theft Auto sandbox type game where you, you, you control the character going around town. But it's pretty hard to do those games well, I think. Well, there you go. That's pretty much a bit of the background of the making of the movie, guys, um, which started in April 1973, just after Clint had awarded the Best Picture Oscar in March 73 to The Godfather. Why was he delivering it? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Did you you mention that Ted Post um, had directed him before? Oh, yes, sorry, in uh, Hang 'em High, right? And... And uh, quite a lot of uh, rawhide episodes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wonder how many was? It, how many directors did rawhide sort of rotate around? Was there sort of like a, a regular schedule of them? Don't know. There would have been quite a lot. Yeah. I, I thought that might be interesting if Siegel had done one, but I don't think he had. But, he wasn't um, much of a TV guy, was he? I mean, he was already sort of in, in film by then. I think. Ted Post. No, no, Siegel. Siegel, yeah. No, he hadn't really done much TV at all. Although he had done two Twilight Zone episodes, I think. Mm. So, yeah, that's pretty much all I've got about the pre-production, guys. Would you like to uh, maybe come back after the break and talk about 1973 a little? Sure. Okay. There are killers on the loose, dressed like cops, and they always use a magnum. Welcome back after the break. Now we're quickly going to run through some of the things that happened in 1973 when Magnum Force was being written, produced, and released. You interested to hear some of this crap, Tim? Well, if you keep it within a reasonable time frame, yes. (laughs) Do you guys have any favourite events of 73 you want to bring up? Uh, I've noted some interesting... So... I'm assuming we've probably all gone to the same one web- <laughs> website that's got the same facts from 1973. Pretty much, I'm sure. <laughs> um, stuck out to you, Tim? Apart from Magnum Falls. Uh, I noticed the uh, the Sydney Opera House opened, apparently. That's right. After how many months? 14 months? or No, longer. Years, right? I don't know. I, well, I actually uh, assume, like, I've, I think I kind of knew it already, but then I... For some reason, I just assumed it had been around for like decades before that. So, so that was interesting. Um, also, uh, the World Trade Center in New York, they say, becomes the tallest building in the world. Is that while it was still being constructed? I think you are right. And I think the week before, the first ever mobile phone call was made. Did you come across that by Motorola? The, oh, wow. A few days oh, before no. the uh, inauguration of Tower 2. I'm not saying they were related, but there you go. <laughs> Interesting. Um, what about you, Trent? Anything else? Elvin Purple became the highest-grossing Australian 
film Ooh. of all time in 1973. For our American American audience, that features a bare-breasted <laughs> uh, Jackie Weaver in an early role, right? Yes. <laughs> and, well, the star of it, Graham Blondell, played uh, in a couple of cut scenes in Star Wars Attack of the Clones. He played oh. uh, Natalie Portman's father. Oh, nice. Didn't end up on the cutting room right. floor, actually, is in the film. No, no, it's 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 cut. It's on the DVD as a bonus feature. But you see him during a funeral in um, the third one, Revenge of the Sith. Mm-hmm. Elven Purple was uh, one of the best things of 1973 for you, Trent? No. No? But just, just highlighting it. It was <laughs> just in film. It's not a good film. All right. I'll quickly rattle off, hopefully quickly, as you've said, Tim. Uh, the year started off pretty Good with some closure finally to the Vietnam War. January 27, the US involvement ends with the signing of the Paris Peace Accords. Um, February 11, the first American prisoners of war were released from North Vietnam. And on March the 29th, the last United States soldier left South Vietnam, at which time China's aid to North Vietnam ended and Vietnam, communist Vietnam, became under the Soviet influence instead. On the 1st of January, UK entered the EU, then known as the European Economic Community. Uh, January 22, in the US, Roe versus Wade. The Supreme Court overturned all state laws prohibiting, prohibiting abortion, making abortion now permissible in all but third trimester abortions. Still the law to this day. February the 18th, the first ever light beer in the world was introduced, Trent. By Miller's. Really? Wow. Yeah, I don't know if I'm shocked at how late or early it is. I would have said how early, I would think. Yeah. I just thought it would have came in the late 80s or something, even that. But yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Do you think Harry would touch that shit, Tim? <laughs> He's a Budweiser man, I would think. Later that month in February, Bulgaria proposed joining the USSR. They'd embraced communism that wholeheartedly. Russia, uh, Russia embarrassingly said, uh, thanks, but nah, that's all right. <laughs> Did they give a reason why they declined? I don't think they like all the territory, you know, and no. Western countries between them, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought so. They do have a very different feel, though. Like Bulgaria, if you cross the border from you know, Russia into there, you feel like you're very much in a different place, despite... A lot of the history being similar. Sometime in March, Harvey Milk's store, the Castro Camera, opened. Uh, Watergate stuff started in March, yada, yada, yada. Fuck that, I don't care. August 23, the Storg robbery occurs. Famous for the origin of the term Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, on September 11th, 1973, there's, of course, the... The overturning of the socialist government in Chile with undeniably CIA backing and military support, which coming after the uh, the loss of Vietnam to communism was sort of a consolation prize for America. Uh, October 6th, the Yom Kippur War starts in the Middle East, where combined Egyptian and Syrian forces attacked Israel in the Sinai Peninsula and Golan Heights in retaliation for the 1967 defeat of the Arab states. October 17th, OPEC issues an oil embargo against all countries supporting Israel and the US. Oil goes from a 
price of $1.50 or $7 today a barrel to $12 a barrel or $70 a barrel, basically the price it is today. Amongst other things, the oil crisis led to a shortage of the vinyl needed to manufacture records. A number of new albums were either delayed or only available in limited quantities until Christmas. So you never know how oil is going to affect whole parts of life. <laughs> From heating, as you say, we've mentioned before, to transport to uh, consumable goods, plastics as well. Tim Octo 20, you said the Sydney Opera House is finally opened um, by Queen Elizabeth after 15 years of construction work. Bitch, took her a long time. Seems like a long time to build. <laughs> yes. November 25, Greek generals are ousted in a military coup, ending seven years of military rule of Greece. The next month, Papua New Guinea gained self-government from Australia. In the psychology world, the American Psychiatric Association officially declared homosexuality no longer a mental disorder, with 60% of the uh, physicians ruling in favour. While the APA removed it as a disorder, it still designated homosexuality as, quote, a sexual orientation disturbance for people, quote, in conflict with their sexual orientation, end quote. It was not until 1987 that homosexuality was completely removed as a disorder or as a disturbance, which seems pretty was, late in the day, Trent, for that. That's yeah, I was going to ask that because, I mean, here in, in Victoria, the, you know, the part of Australia we're in, it was illegal until 1979. Mm. Um, in New Zealand, I think it was 1986. At least they were yeah. ahead, of, ahead of the uh, Medical Association, <laughs> I suppose. That, that's right. That's why that sort of shocked me, that it was that late in the piece. If governments had already sort of, you know, they're the last to act upon yeah. those sorts of things. <laughs> I was re-watching The Enforcer a few weeks ago, and um, it's a bit nasty, that movie. Uh, at the end, uh, Clint goes, you fucking fruit. Nah, but yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, technology, Tim. June the 4th, a United States patent for the ATM is granted. The same month, Atari releases Pong to video arcades. Wow. Didn't know it was that early. Yeah. Sega, an electromechanical arcade game manufacturer, first enters the video game industry with its own clones of Pong. November 20th. <laughs> Sorry, Sega for our international listeners. November 21, the sci-fi movie Westworld is the first feature film to use digital image processing. I didn't quite look up what exactly that entailed, but I think from scratch on a computer they designed a, a, a clip, a scene, I don't know. Have, have you seen it? Never. Oh, yeah, there's a couple of shots in it where you get the... The android played by Yul Brynner's character, you get his view. So mm. it's kind of like a precursor to the, oh, the yeah, Terminator scanning. Right. Oh. Yeah. It's it's almost like little pixelations, but the screen's pixelations. That's right. Like heat. Yeah, because it's like the robot's point Does of view. Does it look okay? Um, oh, yeah, fuck. It's a good movie. You should watch yeah. It. I like the sequel. I think it was fine, yeah. Or Future World. Future World. People give that yeah, shit. Yeah. I thought that yeah. was great. I mean, it's lower budgeted. I can't remember a thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> is it subtitled? Is it subtitled Future World, The Year We Make Contact? 
We, the year we make contract. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Westworld might have also had some shots of computer screens, which might have been a novelty yeah. back then. On the econ- in the economic sphere, the economists first articulate the Black Skulls mathematic model of financial market containing derivative investments, which uh, would years later give us the global financial crisis, the packaging of toxic debts. Famous books from 1973 include G. G. Ballard's Crash, William Goldman's The Princess Bride, Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions, and Tim's personal favourite, Lois Duncan, with a little book called I Know What You Did Last Summer. <laughs> really? <laughs> Famous births, April 5th, Pharrell Williams, June the 15th, Neil Patrick Harris, July 23, Monica Lewinsky. But famous deaths as well. Lyndon Johnson, Edward G. Robinson, not the father of Andrew Robinson, Pablo Picasso, Bruce Lee, and J.R.R. Tolkien. Which one are you most saddened by in uh, abstract, Trent? Of the deaths? Yeah. Bruce Lee, I, was I guess. Thinking, I was saddened by um, Pharrell Williams' birth. <laughs> 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 oh. I, yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm sad about. <laughs> Moving to films, of which Magnum Force was the sixth highest earner in the US. Sixth highest earner, Magnum. Number one was The Sting, with $156 million. Have you seen that, guys? I've seen the soundtrack in a lot of op shops, but that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> I, ne- I haven't seen the sequel, though. <laughs> Along with the rest of the world, but I, I love the film. What's the sequel called? The Sting 2. it's made about it's in the early 80s and um oliver reed's taken over from robert shaw yeah right (laughs) um fuck i can't even remember who uh, jackie gleason or something i'm just looking it up yeah jackie gleason Uh, mac davis carl Carl malden carl malden's in it yeah it's funny (laughs) how funny i didn't even realize there was a yeah why would you bother (laughs) <laughs> Number two was The Exorcist, $128 million. And that, that only came out during the final month of the year, I think. Like Magnum Force as well on Boxing Day. Is I that think. right? Yeah. Oh. Wow. Little Girl was Shit. okay. Little Girl was okay, but uh, Andy Robinson would have done better. Number, th- <laughs> number three was American Graffiti. Interesting. Um, just with The Exorcist, it's interesting that it was such a hit. Like, yeah. I guess, was that was that a new sort of horror film that just the word of mouth um, kept people going? Yeah. Don't Look Now was also in that year, wasn't it, Trent? It, it was, yeah. Top 10, you wonder with The Exorcist, because of the you know, churches controlling things, uh, you know, still do to a certain degree, but suddenly that censorship yeah. lowering where you could... You know, fuck <laughs> a crucifixion. You know, fuck it, fuck it. She's <laughs> grabbing it in, in the other regions. Yeah, pretty horrific yeah, stuff. Yeah. Uh, the next one was Papillion. Papillion after American Graffiti with fifty-three million dollars for Papillion. The way we were with forty-five million dollars. Yuck. Magnum Force was the sixth, as mentioned, for forty million dollars in America. 
the only Warner Brothers movie, I think, in the list to make it the highest earning. To put in perspective, it only earned a quarter the profits of The Sting. I think next was either Lango, Last Tango in Paris or Live and Let Die. So pretty respectable for the sequel to to um, yeah. surpass a, a Bond movie, at least. That's pretty cool. Into the Dragon wasn't on there? It was. The I think 10. in the top 15, I think. Oh, okay. 26th yeah. of July. 22nd of August, High Plains Drifter. Boring. And October was a great month. You've got Mean Streets, Don't Look Now, Charlie Varick, and The Case of the Smiling Stiffs. Hey. Mentioned on this movie before. <laughs> <laughs> really? That came out at 73. Should I? I thought 74. There you go. Um... Like 71 was a big year for Eastwood with um, The Beguiled and uh, Play Misty for me. He also had Breezy in 73, his directorial second movie, and uh, High Plains Drifter, Serpico, The Wicker Man, a personal favourite of mine. And as mentioned, December was very impressive. You got Last Detail, Woody Allen's The Sleeper, and then on Boxing Day or Christmas Day in some states, you had The Sting, The Exorcist, and Magnum Force, all on that uh, Christmas, Christmas few days. Oh, wow. I'd have liked to win that. So, so Magnum Force is kind of thrown in there amongst all the, the Oscar um, nominated yeah. ones. Yeah. If that happened these days, you'd think it was maybe trying to be buried or or they didn't... I don't know if they'd, they'd bother doing that now. <laughs> or, or, would, or, or were they actually legit thinking it was worthy of submission? Mm. No, but they wouldn't. They have to They submit their own. Yeah. Uh, I forget what I just said. Yeah. Well, it was the only Warner Brothers movie, I think, from the ones I've mentioned. Except for Enter the Exorcist Dragon. it was. Was that Warner Brothers? Ah. Yeah. Take it back. Um, I think in most territories it's Warner Brothers. Yeah, it was. I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, Sorry, dude. Anyway. Movie long television debuts on March the 8th. We had a CBS TV movie called The Marcus Nelson Murders, which served as the pilot for Kojak. March 21, you had Are You Being Served? <laughs> the first series on BBC One. <laughs> The Young, The Restless, the same month on CBS 2. On September the 8th, you had an animated revival of Star Trek on NBC. Only lasted for one year, but I've seen some of that late night. I like it. And also on the same day, but on ABC, I don't know if this is a coincidence, but a little show called Super Friends. I like Comic book that. related, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like a lightweight That's Justice. The, uh, Justice League. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty cool. As a kid, I liked it. It was um, had all the characters together nicely rather than... Yeah, it was just very pleasant, simplistic sort of stuff. We had also television ends, Tim. We had Bonanza. Um, like, lasted a bit longer than Rawhide. It started in 58, 59, but it ended... Um, uh, Clint could have ended up like Michael Landon, fortunately, but fortunately he didn't. Michelin Impossible <laughs> also ended after a five- or six-year run. Musical Theatre, you had Grease, The Rocky Horror Show, both had their having their London production premieres, and the general nostalgia boom. We've mentioned American Graffiti, but also Happy Days, I think, began in 73, thereabouts. 73, 74, yeah. In music... 1973 was supposedly the number the the year that had the most number of black artists in the top 100 then or since sure. make of that what you will four famous singles you had david essex rock on sweet the ballroom blitz Stiller's wheel stuck in the middle with you 
Um, a little-known band called ABBA had Nina, Pretty Ballerina, and Ring Ring. Roberta Flack killing me softly with his schlong. Steve Miller, The Joker. Ike and Tina Turner, The Nutbush City Limits. You also had the previous year, 1972, most of the 60s legacy artists had taken the years off Dylan, Who, The Stones. But 73, they came back, particularly the Beatles ex-soloists. Uh, uh, the famous Blue and Red albums came out. George Harrison, George Lair, John Lennon, Mind Games, Ringo Starr, Ringo. Closest thing to a Beatles reunion on one or two songs. Wings Band on the Run. Elton John. Kiss performed their first concert in Queens on the 30th of January. February 7th, Stooges, Raw Power. March 1, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. March 13th, David Bowie, Aladdin Sane, Trent. And on 3rd of July, Bowie retired his stage persona, Ziggy Stardust, in front of a shocked Hammersmith Odeon audience. I think you have that DVD, Trent. Yes, I, I can't remember the last time I saw that. Never a big Ziggy fan. How did he, re- like, did he just, was it a surprise? This is not only or- the last show of the tour, but the last show we'll ever do some shit like that, I can't remember. And then, <laughs> and then he got rid of the mullet. That was it, basically. <laughs> and, and fired the band and got a new band. <laughs> I don't know why he sounded like Billy Idol just then, but anyway. <laughs> In July, Lou Reed uh, released Berlin. Trent, is that any good? Yeah, that's not bad. I forgot about I keep forgetting about that album. Transformers is best, though. This was a few weeks after the 21st of March, when Lou Reed was bitten on the buttocks by a fan during a concert in Buffalo, New York. Can you confirm that, Trent? No. 31st of August, <laughs> Rolling Stones, Goat's Head Soup, which I can confirm is a really, really shit album, but it has Angie on it. And 19th of October, The Who had Quadrophenia and The Wailers had Burning. Which of those releases are most interesting to you, Tim? Oh, sorry, I wasn't really paying attention. <laughs> well, like, like anyone our age, just say, oh, Bowie. It was Bowie, Bowie. <laughs> yeah. Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> now, I, I had a lot prepared for Australia, but um, I don't know if I can be fucked, Trent. Well, I'm just trying to think, 1973 in Australia. Elf and Purple, uh, you mentioned. Elf and Purple, Seven Little Australians, the TV series. That was 1973. Uh, what else came out in 1973? Ryan? which was um, Crawford's first thing in colour, all film, uh, shot for the international market, hence the colour, starring Rod Mulliner as a private eye. Fuck, what else? 1973. You've neglected to mention that Kathy Freeman was born on the 16th. Was she? Yep, Olympic gold medalist. Kieran Perkins followed in August. Um, on the 31st of December, 1973, Brothers Malcolm and Angus Young first performed under the name ACDC at Sydney nightclub Checkers for a New Year's Eve party. The, the, what their band was called before that? Stroking the Penis? <laughs> uh, the Velvet Underground. Oh, really? Yeah, they were in a band called The Velvet Underground. Coincidence. <laughs> Coincidence. I don't think... Yeah, you know, it's fucking Australia in the early 70s. I doubt would have <laughs> known what <laughs> the Andy Warhol band was. One of the famous things, apparently, in 1973, Tim, in Australia, but in the last few days, some other subsequent research has 
made me doubt this, but apparently Solo, the soft drink, was released in 1973. But people also mentioned really? 68. 73. 68 also pops up, so I don't know what that's about. Uh, on the logos, it, it says EST 1973. Interesting. One of my favourite uh, favorite sugary drinks, Trent. So good. Is that Australian? Yeah. Solo? Yeah. You didn't know? Okay. Um, maybe I did. Just never thought about it, I suppose. Never has a soft drink had so much machismo. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I had a lot to say about the Whitlam Labor government, which um, ended its honeymoon period in 73, but I think I might leave that till uh, the end of the podcast. That's what I was thinking when you mentioned 1973. That's the main thing that was going through my mind. The big thing for us... I I, I get what you're saying. (laughs) It's like, where do you start? There's a whole lot of of embarrassing things about, you know, the ASIO raid on... Sorry, the the Commonwealth Police raid on ASIO, which uh, made America not trust Australia so much with its intelligence. Um, After the bombings of North Korea, you know, a lot of the Whitlam cabinet um, members were calling the US madmen and war criminals and stuff, which didn't endear them to Nixon and Kissinger. There was doubts over whether Whitlam would renew the Pine Gap thing. So a whole lot of international issues on Australian um, domestic agenda that was causing America, particularly right-wing Nixon, to be very sceptical about Australia. But um, university fees were abolished until 1990, Tim. Obviously, we went to uni after that, so we had to pay hex, but for that... 17, 18 year old, 18 period, university was free for anyone who just passed the uh, this. I believe my dad was a recipient of that um, that uh, scheme. Oh. Yeah, so he's indebted to the He's in thanks and, and, and all. Of the time. Yes, you could say that. 18th of October, 73, a resolution, but it was passed that homosexual acts between consenting adults in private not be subject to the criminal law. Unfortunately, most of the laws are state-related, so it was just a symbolic gesture. But um, future Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser abstained from that vote. That's pretty much all I've got. The only other thing to add was um, I was just looking up what happened in sports, and there's a lot of things, like teams and winners that I don't really know much about, but I saw um, the New York Knicks won the NBA championship, which uh, stood out because I know that they're supposed to not be very good and um when i clicked on the link for their their wiki page turns out 73 was their last championship so they've been pretty (laughs) rubbish since then do you know what the knicks stand for what does that mean the knicks the coppers or something you've been nicked (laughs) knickerbockers oh yeah i don't know no i don't know i was just making that up So, yeah, that's pretty much all I've got for 1973, guys. I hope I haven't bored you, but that's part of what was happening around the world when uh, Magnum Force came out. Cool. You've just educated the listener or listeners. What was the most interesting fact, you reckon, Tim? The light beer one? Like, fuck, it was not until 1973 light beer was around. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I'm still I'm still not, like, I, I'm still surprised the Sydney Opera House only opened <laughs> in 1973. Yeah. <laughs> I've never. Have you been to a performance there? Any of you? I've never been inside. Yeah. Okay. What's it Twice. like? Amazing, amazing. Um, you lost, well, the first lost one. Lost your virginity I... down the back, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> to my hand. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, the first one was, I think, a seven-piece 
performance. It was Br- Brian Eno. Oh, wow. Um, up there. And then the second performance I went to up there was, it was fucking outstanding. And it was, uh, I can't remember what they're called. It's some, I think they're called Vintage Orchestra or something like that through the Red Bull Music Academy. And it was a tribute to the music of Giorgio Moroder. And uh, it was sensational in, in that environment. And going in, I bullshitted my way into a press conference with Giorgio Moroder beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> I just sort of hovered round. And when they admitted to the press, I just walked in amongst them. I was by myself. And it was beautiful because wow. it was sun- sunset looking over the harbour with the um, the ferries going past. And he was there. You know, there were maybe 25 of us in the room. It was very cool. Oh, I didn't mention 73. He come the warm jets or maybe for your pleasure or something came out. Yeah, both of those albums. Uh. Here come the warm jets. I like that one. It's good. What's your favourite cultural artifact from '73, Trent? Anything we've mentioned so far? Aladdin, no, not Aladdin Sane or no, no, really. The Exorcist. No, um, <laughs> don't know. Yeah, not not too sure. I think anything Magnum Force. Magnum Force. Why we're here this evening? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's sort of anything I I probably like from that time was something ongoing from prior going through 73. I, I couldn't name anything, though. Well, American pretty- Graffiti, that's a good film. Oh, American Graffiti, yeah. yeah. Mine's probably <laughs> in the Mag- Magnum Force, Trent. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to... Uh, we're going to throw to a quick clip of Tim Matheson, uh, who plays one of the uh, the cops, uh, for a clip of him from Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast talking about how he involved himself in the film. Yeah, sounds good. I'm calling the police. I am the police. What? Oh, the cop that lives upstairs? Put your pants back on, Callahan, and come down to the city morgue as fast as you can. All right, I'll catch you guys soon. Uh, yes. Right around this time, you did Magnum Force. Yeah, yeah. I had been, uh, I'd been, I, my first vacation. I went to to Europe, sort of bumming around with a buddy of mine, and and we started London, went to Paris, and then got to Rome, and um, and I got a call that I and a script because there was the William Morris agency was my agency at the time. Um, gave me the script and said, I you know they need you back in L.A. to audition for this. So oh, that's great. And um, so I got on a plane and I worked on this audition for the you know the lead cop and I was thinking oh I really want to be in this movie, and I get there and I go in for my audition or I think is an audition and the director says how tall are you and I said uh, I'm six two and he says okay you got it. And I said, <laughs> Well, what do you mean you got it? He said, yeah, you're going to play this guy. And I said, well, can I read for that one? He said, nah, it's been cast for months. Um, it was David Soul's part. David Soul, yeah. A bigger, a bigger character part. And uh, and he just said, I just want to make sure you were the right size. And he said, now we're not going to start shooting for six weeks. And I said, well, I came all the way back from Rome. I could have said. <laughs> it was like. <laughs> but I got to say, working with Clint was, was just a, a, a trip because I didn't know. If he was the real deal, you know, I just thought, ah, this guy's a TV actor who became, I, you know, I was full of myself as an actor. And I thought, you know, God, he, I, is he a really an actor? And I came up to him the first day of shooting and I said, hi, Clint, how are you? I'm Tim. And I, 
listen, do you want to rehearse? You want to work on the scene? You want to do anything? And he said, I'll be happy to do that with you. And he goes, no, no, I, you know, not really don't want to do that. I don't, there's something special about the first time you say the words. And I'd like to get that on film. Wow. Okay. And I just walked away and I thought, all right, he's not much of an actor. He doesn't know how to rehearse. But we rolled the camera. He listens better than almost any other actor I've ever worked with. And then during the scene, it wasn't a big, long scene, but he changed something that affected one of my lines. And I'm listening and I changed my line to adjust to his line. And then it was just his banter back and forth between us. And it was he was right that there was something magic and special about the very first time you do it. And that's the way he still works. You know, I mean, and, and I walked away from that day and also that movie with just the utmost respect for him because he really directed it. I think uh, it was one of his early, mm-hmm. you know, directing things, even though there was another director of record. Ted on Post. Ted Post, right? Yeah. Who, who, yeah, I, I don't even remember Ted being around. <laughs> he was there, but I mean, you know. <laughs> kind of a Mel Brooks and, deal. And, and and you liked him, you know, he because if he just played it that tough, you wouldn't like him. And yet at some point, you know, Harry Callahan, you liked the guy, you yeah. know, you really, you, he was, he cared for people. It's a pretty good and, movie. Yeah, it's, it's a really, John Milius wrote it. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah and really it, good. It, it was, it was one of the better ones. Yeah. And, and, uh, and Clint couldn't have been nicer. And sweeter. And, you know, you go home early with him. You never do too many takes. You, you don't do a lot of different shots. You just do the bare minimum that he knows we need for, to make this picture. That's all you need. And then we, then we go home. Right. Either you're for us or you're against us. afraid you've misjudged me. Briggs, I hate the goddamn system. But until someone comes along with some changes that make sense, I'll stick with it. You're about to become extinct. We spent a hundred episodes reviewing Dirty Harry. And the first question we should have when considering a sequel is, should they have let the first film be? On its own, a powerful standalone masterpiece. Some have called Magnum Force, quote, a lame attempt to appease the original film's liberal detractors, end quote. Undoubtedly, there's a bit of truth to that. But that shouldn't discount the movie as it stands. I mean, it's better than a straightforward, you know, rehash that you get today. What, did people really want a direct follow-on sequel with a new murderer to challenge Harry? Would they have preferred a mother, the mother of Scorpio or something, come back? Taunt Harry through new murders to get him back for uh, killing his son? Picking the mum from the Goonies or... Mama from the train being Harry's new nemesis in a proposed sequel. Magnum Force is different from Dirty Harry, there's no denying that the tone is different, not to mention the plot of course, but even the character of Harry shifts a little bit. 
The first film was Harry cleaning the streets, you know, this dirty, scum-infested urban environment. Whereas in Magnum Force, it's Harry's image that needs cleaning up. And they do this by showing that there are cops worse than Harry. More right-wing. Magnum Force shows Harry being more vulnerable. He doesn't have all the answers. In fact, he even makes some mistakes. Showing he's not infallible for the larger part of the movie, he thinks. Vigilantes are, in fact, uh, his friend, Charlie McCoy, when he couldn't be more wrong. Quote, Director Post wanted to expand on the notion of Harry as a dirty cop, while Clint wanted less, to bring more couples into theatres. Most of all, Clint wanted to keep the movie in the entertainment sections and out of the general news pages of the newspapers. I know there was some friction reportedly on set between Ted Post, who never directed a big cinemascope movie, and by all reports, Clint was quite quick in taking over scenes which he considered were taking too long. Maybe scenes that would have shown a bit more subtext, a bit more subtlety to his and others' performances. And some people say the movie lacks the seagull touch, but I don't know, I think it's pretty solid. Maybe not quite as stylish, but, you know, there's handheld cameras... And the city hall scenes, cameras mounted to the bikes and the motorcycles for sort of point of view shots. They're sort of a bit seagull-esque, aren't they? And of course, the cinematography is gorgeous and just as just as dramatic as uh, as Seagull. He certainly makes San Francisco look a lot uh, prettier than Seagull did. Look, am I going to have to have him leaning over my shoulder? Look, you work with brakes on this, Callahan. But if you ever lean on a line, so help me, I'll flop you lower than whale shit. Speaking of whale shit, what have you turned up, Briggs? Lilo Schifrin is back, the composer. Uh, the score's a bit more brassy, a bit of, you know, big, ba- big band feeling from the original, but it's still pretty good. He hasn't sold out too much. Antagonist instead of the mayor thorn in the side of Harry, you get uh, Briggs, played delightfully by Hal Holbrook, a nice piece of casting, you'll enjoy the barbs between the two, you know, there's multiple trips over the San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge, you get to see that a few more times, uh, Harry has a new partner, Chico's gone, but, um, you know, copying Doctor Who, Harry's going to have a lot of partners over his career. Unlike the first movie, it doesn't really dwell on their differences. Differences from Dirty Harry, of course. Harry's different. (laughs) He's not as neurotic as in the first movie. He's not as obsessed with uh, justice. That's sort of gone. His only obsession now seems to be with food. All the time. It just mentions food (laughs) Big part of this movie, that's his obsession now. There's a bit more humour in this movie rather than just 
some, you know, glib, sarcastic line. Yeah, Eastwood can definitely deliver some, some zingers. And yeah, just generally we get to see Harry's character open up a little bit, not too much. It's the only movie in the series where we get to see his home. Um, but it definitely shows that Harry is mellowed from the first version of him in, in Seagull's version. Children want to hug him. <laughs> he also seems to have got some forensic skills. Now in the first movie, the, the DA doesn't allow him near them at all. A quote from the novelization, the first one. Don't mess around too much looking for clues. A junky whore with a big mouth will crack a case ten times faster than a crime lab. That's a different sort of Harry. You know, this movie, it's not just... It's not about Manoranda rights at all. It's not about Harry standing on wounds and saying, Where's the girl? It's not as glib as that. Speaking of girls, there's actually girls in Harry's life in Magnum Falls. Much to the chagrin of one of the authors, uh, one of the screenwriters, I should say, John Milius, who doesn't like the third act, but apart from that, he also doesn't like Harry's, quote, bed buddy. But despite all these criticisms, it doesn't seem to have mattered because the movie was the year's sixth highest earner. It's very popular. And uh, released at the end of the year, too. I've got nothing personal against you, Callahan. But we can't have the public crying police brutality every time you go out in the street. Now, turning our mind to the moral of the film, most reviewers seem to like the idea that there were worse cops than, than Harry Callahan. Uh, the vigilantes in Magnum Force act like a court of last resort, similar to that in 1983's Star Chamber, um, which we talk about a bit in this episode also featuring Hal Holbrook in a similar sort of role, who, you know, he, he tells a disenchanted trial judge, Michael Douglas, you know, I can sleep at night, can you? When they uh, embark upon their vengeance killing of uh, criminals that they've had to let go in their day job as, a, as judges. So there was relief from some quarters, you know, Harry in the second movie anyway, knows there's a line and knows when not to cross it. So the movie's basically justice versus vengeance. We start at the movie with the protesters uh, criticising Ricker's not guilty verdict. And the Dirty Harry sequel says, yes, sometimes the law is a blunt instrument for enforcing justice. And... But because, you know, it is. It is a blunt instrument. Sometimes the guilty go free, but it's better than the alternative. Do you have any idea how hard it is to prosecute a cop? And who's going to believe you? You're a killer, Harry. A maniac. But the lesson is, what do you... What do you take away from that fact that, yes, the law is imperfect? As Hal Holbrook says in the Star Chamber, he goes, the laws are Rubik's Cubes that can be twisted, and it's always been a game, but now the bad guys have a stronger team, he says. Increased rights and good lawyers can twist things around. Of course, in this movie, there's little, there's little 
little looking backwards to rights and reasonable searches like the first movie. But you know, each element of the law needs to be proven um, and the best standard of evidence, you know. So the law is neutral and people hate its neutrality, but nothing's, you know, nothing's right or wrong or whatever. It's just either lawful or it's not lawful. And the movie is a reminder that we can't shortcut justice because that's just vigilantism, isn't it? As you tolerate vengeance, the more you allow people to circumvent the courts, so too does the likelihood of people like the Charles, Charlie McCoy's being killed, you know, Suzanne Summers in the pool, all those gangsters' moles, you know, they're vaguely associated with the criminals, so they have to die too, and vigilantes are always going to find themselves coming to that line. Inevitably, they're going to kill someone who's who's innocent, despite their best intentions. And for this reason, you must hold that the system is better than nothing, uh, which Harry says, despite what he did in the first movies. He realises, uh, or he pretends Scorpio never existed, and he has to give the system... A chance to fail first. Whose side are you on, anyway? It's just a wild shot. I'm probably wrong. I'd like to handle it my own way. Now, there was some criticism of the movie uh, as movie-making, pure and simple, saying that it might be a good sequel intellectually, but it comes at the expense of the character of Harry. And again, should films be made made as an argument or on behalf of a position you know to quote fix the criticisms of the first movie is it a good drama some said no but uh, the makers of dirty harry minute you and me we think it's a pretty good drama it has some flaws but it's uh, you know it's open to you all out there to form an opinion duh and there's criticism just nakedly for its politics uh, the Los Angeles Free Press said, The promise of a dirty Harry liberals could live with goes mainly unfulfilled. And uh, the article says, you know, Harry's still violent and he doesn't really have a good, valid rebuttal against the vigilantes. doesn't, you know, correct the first movie, really, because it doesn't deal with any regret Harry might have over his execution of Scorpio. And they could have brought that into the film somehow. Scorpio just Harry's one and only exception when he's going on about, you know, when police start becoming their own executioners. Where's it going to end, huh, Briggs? How does Scorpio figure into that? The vigilantes are saying, you know, San Francisco's full, chock-a-block full of other, other people just as bad as Scorpio. Why, why is Scorpio the exception? article said apparently it's not the principle of vigilantism that's flawed it's just its potential misapplication and the implication is that no lesser people than harry can't be trusted on to be vigilantes uh to to demand to force justice on a situation and it's just sort of like jimmy stewart backtracking to his you know to his killer proteges in rope He's just gone too far in the first movie. Set a very dangerous precedent. So, according to that criticism, the movie could 
reinforce the idea that vigilantism is okay when it's practiced by someone who knows what they're doing. And so when Harry says, you know, man's got to know his limitations, he could in fact be talking about himself and not Bristler. Uh, not, sorry, Briggs. <laughs> um, you know, I know where the line is when I see it, but uh, you mere mortal motorcycle cops, you can't. He knows they've, um, they're asking the right question. You know, what's to be done about this tidal wave of crime? Seemingly no one's held accountable. Uh, knows it's the wrong answer, what's they're doing, but uh, it's a good question. You know what I think? I'll tell you what I think! Fuck the courts, that's what I think! They've already wasted too goddamn much time worrying about the rights of killers on the street! Enrique, you're a killer! Today, the noted labor leader, Carmine Ricca, was acquitted on a technicality, the lack of admissible evidence. So, there you go. There are some of the criticisms about the movie. I think there's certainly some valid points in them, but I don't care. I love this movie. (laughs) You know, the vigilantes in this movie, they're basically Dexter. Four Dexters. You know, they think they're only killing horrible murderers, but downplaying perhaps inside a bloodlust that they, they really have hiding inside them. And, you know, they think, oh, we're just killing guilty, obvious, reprehensible people, just like Harry does in the first film, but it's a slippery slope, as Harry points out. And in fact, it reminds me, in one one Dexter episode, he, he actually frees someone from certain conviction so it won't go to trial, just so he can murder them. That's a big, slippery slope where, you know, you're automatically just reaching for, as we said before, vengeance before justice. And then you'll just do it every time. You'll give up even the pretense of putting it to, uh, to adjudication. A cop kills a hoodlum on the street, he might as well just dump the body someplace. Because those snap-nosed young bastards down at the DA's office will crucify him one way or another. A hood can kill a cop. Or let a cop kill a hood. Am I right? So, yeah, I think this movie has a lot of positives. You know, it's action-packed. The violence is pretty realistic and shocking, too. It's of the quick and a, the quick sort of kind. It's not lingered on in a... Tarantino fetishized Peckinpah way. Um, it's funny when Harry uh, sheds his inspector's uniform and uh, gets wings as Captain Callahan. <laughs> no, the script has three authors. It just really comes together well, and you'd hardly know, I think. And the problem with the script is more just there's too many scenes rather than a criticism of what's in the scenes. The dialogue's pretty sharp, and uh, yeah, there's also a lot of foreshadowing of things that are uh, about to come. I was just thinking when Briggs says, you know, if I have my way, you won't make an arrest for as long as, as long as you live. Sort of a cryptic way of saying, you know, if uh, what happens is what I hope happens, you'll be uh, killing people as a vigilante with my uh, four young dudes. And McCoy's wife, uh, you know, she goes, he's so sick about it, about his uh, about her husband. 
Uh, he shouldn't be able to carry a gun. Which could be, of course, referring to Harry in any of the sequels. You know, someone else says, whose side are you on? And Harry, in the basement, I'm afraid you've misjudged me. These could all be, you know, lobs at the media, the Pauline Kales, the reviewers of the first movie. I think that's a little childish to address critics in this this sort of way, but I don't know. That's it's a movie that does want to address some issues, so uh, why not? Tell him it's a traffic cop. A cop? That's right. A traffic cop? Are you out of your mind? Do you expect me to believe that a traffic cop is killing off all the top criminals in the city? Huh? Who? The acting? The acting's very good. Eastwood was even praised for um, his acting style for once. Uh, quote, The first non-Seagull film where Eastwood, the actor, has real style instead of sleepwalking into place to pose for the one-sheets. End quote. <laughs> Which is ironic because uh, his character, Harry, in this movie spends the whole time giving shit to people for their style <laughs> or their stylish behaviour. Maybe the real star of the movie is Hal Holbrook. He's just so good. His deadpan voice. In fact, the the barbs they trade together, Harry and him, is probably one of the best things of the movie. Fun fact, both him and Tim Matheson, um, according to Wikipedia, played bad guys in uh, Fletch movies. <laughs> um, negatives of the movie, maybe... The criticism of it being too long and episodic is true. We get a lot of introductions to the uh, the victims. Lots of characters and uh, subplots, I guess you'd call them. Uh, it's not a big problem for me. I love this sort of leisurely filmed 70s style. But maybe for a modern audience, they'd prefer the... You know, the simple good versus evil narrative of the first movie. Um, that's about it. I really like this movie. Um, it's a pretty powerful movie. Like I said, it was the sixth largest earning film of 1973. You know, it's legacy cementing sequels to uh, cop movies. The most immediate legacy, of course, was it secured another sequel three years later in The Enforcer. The movie obviously cemented Eastwood's happiness with Warner Brothers. He was very impressed with their marketing. And, you know, in a few short years, he'd be pretty much hitching his uh, his whole career there. Mel Paso picked up the new editor, Ferris Webster, who worked as editor at those productions until the mid mid 80s really with honky tonk man or or firefox shooting all the right people get shot one of the uh, unintended negative legacies of the film unfortunately was like the first movie it also led to some real life copycats the hi-fi murders admitted that they inspired by the scene with the prostitute and the drain clean, uh, drain cleaner thinking that it would be really uh, an efficient way of 
dispatching with their victim, but unfortunately not. And on that horrible note, that's about it from me. A bomb? That's right. If you'd bothered me anymore, we'd all be stuck to the ceiling now. Here, would you like to hold it? No, 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 no. I don't want to get involved. Here's some trivia. The uh, alternate names of Magnum Force around the world. Not as interesting as Dirty Harry or the Enforcer, but uh, in Argentina it was called Magnum 44, which I guess makes sense. Uh, in Spain it was called Harry el Fuerte, which means Harry the Forceful or the Harry the, the Strong One, as opposed to uh, Harry el Sucio, Harry the Dirty One, uh, for the previous movie. And in Germany, West Germany anyway, it was called Dirty Harry 2. Makes sense, I guess. Yeah, so in August of 74... Dr. Google tells us uh, uh, an author, scriptwriter called Ronald Sheridan sued Warner Brothers for appropriating what he said was his script uh, of 1972 called The Final Solution. Uh, it was settled out of court. So I don't know the, uh, the legitimacy of that claim, but as we've set it out, it's pretty obvious that it's a melange of all the previous versions uh, of the first Dirty Harry's draft that were revised by Michael Cimino, but yeah, he sued Warner Brothers for uh, copyright infringement. I couldn't find him online, really. Ronald Sheridan. That was on Wikipedia, was it? Yeah. But they were they were original ideas, as in, sorry, they were idea like, this plot was supposedly a, an idea for the original film, wasn't it? That's right, yeah, Vigilance, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Clint was pretty impressed with Chimino's work because um, it led them to doing uh, Tenderfoot and Lightfoot the next year. That uh, was his sort of directorial main studio debut. Yeah. So all in all, Tim, did you did you enjoy watching Magnum Force? Yeah, I, li- I like it. It's good. It's it's the only sequel of the Harry series that I think is decent. Like. That I would watch again, pretty much. <laughs> what about you, Trent? What are your first memories of seeing it? And did you uh, did you think it was a poor a poor cousin to the original? Oh, a little bit. It, I mean, it seems a little rough in some respects. Uh, there are some cool elements to it where you do get to see his home life expanded out a little bit more. Um, Hal Holbrook's presence is always pretty welcome uh, in anything he appears in. Uh, yeah, I don't mind it. I've never disliked the film, but, you know, it's something you can kind of live without. It's a nicety. It, it, yeah, it's, it's not, not the classic a necessity. the first one is. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, I like the third one. The Enforcer. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> My opinion of that movie was always relatively high, but the last few times I've seen it, I've just been a bit, um, I don't know, just a bit of... I'm not offended, but just found it a bit gross or so. I don't know, just a bit trashy. But I'm willing to be corrected. Yeah. I, I've i only seen it the one time and I wasn't that hot about it, but maybe I should give it another go. I, ironically, I saw Magnum Force uh, pretty much straight after Dirty Harry in my late teens. Oh. I was actually doing a, a maths tutoring class in uh, Greensboro. And I bought it ex-rental on VHS. And I probably probably actually watched Magnum Force more than I ever watched Dirty Harry. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Because the only no copy shit. I had of Dirty Harry... The only copy I had of Dirty Harry 
was, you know, the, the DVD in 2000 or 2001. So for the first few years of knowing it, I just had the the copy from Barrett's class and I think it was, he'd missed a few, uh, you know, taped through the TV commercials or missed them, I should say. So I probably saw Magnum Force, the proper version of it, a lot more than I ever saw Dirty Harry for the first few years. So it's always had a soft spot for me, Magnum Force. And you were mentioning before Trent liking, you know, you get to see Harry's home life a little bit. Mm. And I quite enjoyed that. Yeah, so did I. He's a bit cuddlier. You even get to see him with a teddy bear, you know, and every he's got a bevy of chicks that are into him. And he really does. He really did have a wife. He wasn't making that up. <laughs> <laughs> and you, Tim, you, you like the you like the embellishment of his character a bit? Uh, yeah. Oh well, uh, I yeah I I enjoyed like it was it was good, but I yeah I found it straight like it was almost like they um it, there's elements that feel different to the first film in, in an inconsistent way, but I don't mind it. But overall, I, I think it's good. Like I it I I can still watch both films, the first and second one, and and think of them as part of the same series. It wasn't like going from The Force Awakens to The Last <laughs> Jedi or something, like a big change. Like, what the fuck? I'm, yeah. I'm not on board for that. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, John, are you a fan of the British singer-songwriter Robin Hitchcock? Um, only s- I don't know him intimately. What was his first band called? I know they're oh, The Fly Boys, The Love Boys or something. I don't yeah. know. Why? 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 Well, he's, he's got some great song titles. He's got a song, A Man's Got to Know His Limitations, Briggs. <laughs> Can't believe that's escaped my attention. Yeah, I know. Is <laughs> I, it on I, just, Is I, it I on think YouTube? so. I'm just having a look. I'll just see what year it's from. He was in the. What band was he in again? It was the, the Water Boys. boys or the Water Boys. Something, the Boys, the Soft Boys. The Soft Boys? Is it? Oh, okay. Robin. The boys. Hitchcock. I'll only, I'll only listen to the song if it's. Parentheses Briggs. Man's got to know his limitations. Brackets. <laughs> Briggs and brackets. Oh, no. Hey, fuck. You'll love these lyrics. Check this out. Uh, the opening is, a man's got to know his limitations, Briggs, or he will just explode. You lived in your imagination, Briggs. You blew up in the road. And I'm talking to you and to you over there and to you over there. You were riding in your car in San Francisco. You were riding through the weather and the rain. You were riding in your car in San Francisco, but you're never going to ride that way again. A girl's got to know her situation, Clint, or she will just move on. <laughs> Squint through the keyhole or down the barrel of your gun. Um, oh, it's about Sunny, isn't it? Sunny, you can't lead Sunny. You can sleep with Sunny a few times, but then you've got to commit. Mm. Girl next door. <laughs> the final uh, chorus, we've all got a Briggs in us somewhere down the road. I don't know how about you folks, but this Briggs will explode. A man's got to know his limitations, Briggs. <laughs> There's live versions as well. Um, what was the, sorry, the writer you mentioned before, the legal thing, what was his name? Robert? Sheridan. Sheridan. I can't find more about him. While you're looking it up, I'm going to give some quotes from the uh, reviews of the movie, Tim. Magnum Force gives us the comforting assurance that when we need him, Harry will be protecting us from the lunatic fringes of both left and right. Sure, Harry may be a little trigger-happy, but at least he shoots the right people, whoever they are. 
end quote. Was the movie a bit too long, Tim? Was it a bit too... Uh, no, I, 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 I find it entertaining enough. It, uh, there's worse films that are two hours long. Mm. <laughs> and you, Trent, were there a lot... Were there too many characters? Like, could we have had a bit more development of his partner and maybe got rid of a few of the, the vigilante, the victims or something? I don't know. I kind of liked it. I kind yeah, of liked it, the, the it, duration it, it, of it. It moves along. It moves along quite well, I think. But, yeah, you don't get much characterization. No. Um, some people criticise it because the bad guy's identity is never really a surprise. Like, as soon as maybe we see them in the gun range even, we go, okay, we know what's happening here. And that um, we don't get to see their internal rationale and... I don't know. It's never been a big problem for me, but this is what many people have said. Do you, do you think it might have been improved if they made it a bit of a whodunit and, and you you don't know who, like it's one of the cops, but you don't know which cop it is? Yeah, I think that would have been a bit of an, I think that would have been a, a worthwhile improvement. Or even just, you know, there's no real jeopardy in the movie. Like the guys, the vigilante, like the victims you see are going to be killed, you don't care about. Yeah, um, and you don't feel you don't really feel like Harry's in danger. No, because he's got a full fifteen minutes before Briggs even shows up, where it's just you know he's pacing, touching the phone, and everything. And his partner dies pretty quickly. Like they could, they could have drawn that if had a few more times, like him, him going to oh, all right, I'll go answer the phone before I go to the mailbox first or something. And Charlie McCoy dies pretty quickly, and. Yeah, you know, there's definitely no Anne-Marie Deacon. There's no ticking time, really, is there? There's no time clock, which I think the first movie had so so brilliantly. The Los Angeles Free Press said it was still too violent and they didn't like how Harry didn't really have a good answer to the criminals, uh, to, the, to the cops, to Briggs. His whole answer was just, well, you know, Soon you'll be executing people for dogs pissing on your lawn. Like, he didn't really have a good answer to them. It was just, I'm not crossing the line. I know where the line is. You don't. Yeah, I mean, he's playing God, really, uh, the same as they are. That's that's the argument, really. I've always, I mean, I, I enjoy the film, but if you read a millimetre into it, I mean, that sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. The whole contradictive nature and... I mean, once you start looking at that, you have no respect or whatever for the main character. So you're just going to shut off. <laughs> <laughs> I would have liked to have seen uh, more Di Giorgio. Yeah. I mean, why just bring him back for that one scene or two scenes or whatever? Give him a bigger role. The next movie, you'll lose him forever, Tim. I don't know if you remember how the Enforcer pans out. Oh, <laughs> uh, you just reminded me. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't remember Harry Gardino at all in The Enforcer. I have no memory whatsoever of him in it. Yeah, was he in it? Yeah, he's even more of a sycophant to... Oh, who's the new guy in it? The new guy. The guy with the moustache. You know, Dabney Coleman, no. <laughs> Dabney Coleman. The guy's like that. The guy in Planet of the Apes, the third one. Ah, oh, his name's on the tip of my tongue. I was in personnel for seven years. Yeah, that guy. Um, oh, fuck. I don't remember the actor's name. Fuck. Anyway, he's just... Bristler's even more just like a sycophant to him. He's like a non-character, really. Maybe that's why I don't remember him. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I love this film. I'm only clutching at straws how people have criticised it. Obviously, liberals, left-wing progressives are always criticising it. His movies saying they're too left-wing and too violent. No, a lot of people don't seem to really remember Magnum Force, do they? No. Most people just remember the first movie and then everything else is conflated into a... Into, like, one one character. Yeah. <laughs> As a... Uh... As an Asian Australian Tim, do you find the Sunny character a bit, <laughs> a bit gross? I wouldn't say racist, but a bit. I suppose gender race doesn't really matter, but it's a bit, a bit gross. It's a bit, a bit contrived. And the whole, the whole character um, motivations are just odd. <laughs> <laughs> Would you have liked to have seen maybe... I mean, the movie's already long enough, but would you like to have seen a scene where Harry was really, like, really even tempted to join them on a on a sanction and then decided you've misjudged me? Like, maybe that was where the line would be better applied. Um, That's no, a bridge too far. Harry would always yeah, be against they, the... They'd probably... <laughs> you'd, then, you'd then probably start to wonder, like, does Harry know what he's actually doing? I guess the point is he knows where his limitations are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got one last quote, guys, and this is from one of the bastardized, uh, what do you call it, Trent? Like a novelization, like sequel, post-movie series sequel novelization? Oh, yeah. Like it's, yeah, one of the books called Jewel for Canons. How many of them were there? I think six. Okay. In, a, in addition to the, the five movie novelizations. Did you read them all? <laughs> no, I just cherry pick some funny lines. Yeah, anyway, this is from this is from Jewel for Cannons. First, there was the Scorpio affair, where Harry threw away his badge, and recently that terrorist fiasco where he lost his woman partner, and through it all, Harry just kept getting better and better and more and more professional. But that vigilante cop mess probably had something to do with that. Bressler figured. Harry really had to examine his M.O. after that case. Probably one of the better lines in the, that book. <laughs> Do you think this would have a big impact on uh, on Harry, Tim? Or would he wouldn't even give Briggs much of a thought? And would it be hard to explain to everyone that Briggs had done all this? I wonder if Harry would have... <laughs> Good point. Yeah, how does he... What does he do? When he goes back to the office. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a film in itself, really. Because in the Enforcer, he's back on personnel, member. <laughs> yeah. Busted back to personnel. Keeps on getting demoted. He'd have a lot of paperwork to write up. And uh, he still doesn't know about early. Yeah. <laughs> he's gone straight back to Sonny's arms, hasn't he? Surely. Uh, and then he's gone to the office. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he wants his beer and Sonny. <laughs> Gotta uh, let off some steam if you uh, catch my drift. <laughs> I didn't get to fire my gun, but I'll fire my gun now. <laughs> Was that <laughs> six thrusts or only five? <laughs> Hashtag me too. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me on this. Pleasure. It's been a pleasure and a ride. Do you recommend... Uh, Fans of Dirty Harry, check out the movie, Trent. 
Why not? If you sort of got a nice taste for something, um, keep rolling with it. It's the closest thing to it. If you're a fan of the first movie, a lot of same things. You've got the the airplane hijacking, sort of like the bank robbery. You've got even more action, Tim. Pretty good performances. You've got a blonde killed in a pool. <laughs> That's your morbid fascination. You've got Lalo's great music. You've got Clint's... Um, Cheshire cat smirk and yeah, Harry's home life. You get to see he's not a fascist, I guess. And uh, yeah, the next movie will be back the Enforcer, where there's a back again a left wing villain like Scorpio, but this time it's a group of them, some uh, political terrorists. All right, well, thank you very much. Uh, anything you guys want to plug or or mention? No, no, just uh, give them the give them the uh, link to your. Your uh, Magnum Force remake. (laughs) (laughs) Terrific. Okay, well, we'll catch you all next time, whenever that is, reviewing who knows, God knows what, on (laughs) Dirty Dirty Harry Harry. Minute.